0: Hey, everyone. This is Matt Kamen, your fantastic host here at Nonprofit on the Rocks. And with us, as always, is our producer, Ashley Watterson. How are you today, Ashley?
1: I'm doing well, Matt.
0: So we have a few things that I think are very important that our listener may want to know. But also, this is sort of like a, like a personnel write-up for you.
1: Is this my on-air Job performance review.
0: No, no, this is this just came up and I feel like people need to know a few things. I'm going to start on the positive. Let's just start on the positive and then we can get to you because that's what you
1: want, right? And that's everyone knows a good performance review is sandwiched that way. You start with the positive, then you hit them with the critique, and then you finish with the positive.
0: Do you know what I call that? By the way, I call that a tuna fish sandwich. And the reason I call it a tuna fish sandwich is because if you know me, I hate tuna fish. I think it's disgusting. (laughs) I do too. Yes. So I'm going to give you a tuna fish sandwich review.
1: So do you really like bread then though?
0: I mean, again, if you know me, you know that I'm crazy and I do not eat bread.
1: I really think this is an apt metaphor, Matt. You starting with the thing that you abstain from, kind of is a metaphor suggesting you abstain from compliments in general.
0: This again comes down to the review of why you're terrible at your job, but here's, here's what I think people need to know. So I'm going to, I'm going to start with the bread. I'm going to start with the positive. (laughs) And the positive is I just got off a Zoom call. By the way, on a side note, Ashley and I do this intro outro conversation, right? And I need everybody to know that neither one of us knows how to set up a Zoom call. So like, We need to actually have somebody from the office set up the call, log into the call, and then make one of us hosts.
1: Oh, it's sad, but it's true. I'd like to blame it on the fact that we are just so high up. You know how like CEOs tend to not know how to use the copy machine, the coffee maker, things like that. I would like to say that that's it. We just have minions that do things for us. But the reality is we're just old. We're old. just old Luddites.
0: Old. I'm, I digress. So just again, so everybody knows, Ashley, yet again, checkmark is useless. So uh, I just got off a Zoom call with a lady in Peru, in Lima, Peru, who actually listened to our podcast and reached out to actually hire us to do a project in Peru.
1: Matt, this is amazing. So does this mean that Envision, which is already coast to coast... Because we have offices in New York and we've done lots of projects all over the country. Are we now an international organization?
0: I mean, I don't want to jinx it, but we are. Envision Consulting is international. Wow. Mind blown. That's the positive part of this performance review. Now, the tuna fish part of it is our interview that's coming up. Would you like to tell everybody who it is?
1: Yes, we have an interview with Kristen Paglia, who is the CEO of PS Arts.
0: So uh, I want everybody to know that we recorded this episode with Kristen maybe six months ago, and I'm not going to name names, nor am I going to point fingers.
1: (laughs) Why do you have a finger pointing straight at me right now, Matt?
0: That's all I see in my camera. No, no, I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to point fingers. But what I am going to say is that the mediocre producer of this show, nonprofit from the Rocks, somehow misplaced
1: Kristen's episode. I don't want to be a tattletale, but Dr. Kamen, you just heard it. I know you heard it because you listen to every episode. Your son just called me mediocre again. So it's time to withhold the Botox. Until Matt can play nice, it is time to withhold the Botox.
0: No, no, I'm going to actually specifically tell him not to listen to this episode. The final piece of toast is that I have to tell you that the response on LinkedIn has been overwhelming about this show. I will tell you though, Ashley, that no one's slid into my DM. I really thought that I was really clear last week and I'm going to make it an appeal yet again. I would love for one person just once to make me feel good about myself and go DM me. I don't care what you write, write me whatever you want. You can be like, you're this terrible, horrible human being. You can say, God, you're really like full of yourself and here I am DMing you, I don't care. But I need to be able to say to Ashley on the next podcast that somebody slid into my DMs.
1: And we would very much appreciate you all um, writing us your Matt's flame questions because we are gonna have one coming up from a listener. Um, but we're trying to, uh, accumulate a nice stockpile of Matt's playing questions and we need them from you, the listeners. So, you know, you can find us, uh, on our website in nonprofit.com. You can find us on Instagram. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at the nonprofit guy You can find us on Facebook. We have a page. So really people, there is no excuse for you not to slide into our DMs.
0: I hope you enjoy this episode with Kristen, whom Ashley forgot about for a good six months.
1: Kristen, you are unforgettable. And believe me, listener, listeners, it is an episode that is worth the wait.
0: Are you ready?
2: I am. I'm excited. I feel like I'm on Drunk History.
0: Well, hello, Kristen Polia. 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 Wait a second, because there's That's a right. G name, and you've totally screwed up how it's spelled, so or how it's pronounced. So it's Paul. You do it. Well, oh yeah,
2: me. yeah. Oh yeah.
0: All right. Um, well,
2: kind of like a. It's silent, but it's like a. like there's like a throat thing.
0: It doesn't work. I just I can't do it. Tell me. So you were telling me it means something in Italian because it's making me hungry.
2: I think it's a type of pasta that has to do with like yellow straw, like spaghetti. I'm not sure. It's my husband's name. I so I'm hyphenated technically. I'm <laughs> Greer Polia.
0: Career. that would have been so much easier for me to pronounce, but all right, <laughs> all right, here we are. So before we start, we like to, you know, make sure that our listener, uh, listeners, how many we have at this point, we'll see, are joining us in a cocktail. So what are you drinking today, Kristen?
2: I'm drinking a menage a trois. Oh. Keep red yeah. wine from Trader Joe's.
0: We're already that forward on our interview. All right. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am drinking a little bit of bourbon because that's really all I like these days. So cheers to you. Would you like to make a toast aside to ending this dumb dum pandemic? Is there anything else you want to make a toast to?
2: Yeah, let's make a toast to to fight in the good fight. nonprofit.
0: To fight in the non, nonprofit fight. Mm. That's such a good way to end the day. I'm just such a good way to end the day. I think I've been talking about this a few times on different podcasts, but um, all of my friends have been doing this dry. January, dry February, dry March. And uh, have you done a dry January? Dryer. Dryer. <laughs> Never like fully, fully dry. Like I've given oh, up the that's whole unreasonable.
2: month. That's an unreasonable <laughs> way to be in the world. <laughs> I agree. Thank
0: you. I agree.
2: I, I aspire to it. And I, I have had times in my life where I definitely have been healthier. And uh, and it, it felt good when it, when it was happening.
0: I'm. I'm just going to say that I don't think drinking is necessarily not healthy, because if you were to go to your husband's roots in Italy, they're drinking wine for like thousands of years. So like, right? Like it's, it's part of who we are. Like That's fair to say, right?
2: I was just reading just today, and I don't even know why I was reading this, but Queen Elizabeth starts drinking at 11am with a gin and tonic, Hmm. and has at least at a minimum four or five cocktails per day. And she's like, old, right? So she's, she's
0: like 125. So yeah, if she's drinking five gin and tonics a day, I'm not drinking enough is what we are Right,
2: learned. right. That's what I'm thinking. She's little too.
0: <laughs> Listen, and I trust you because you are a doctor. You have a, you have a, a master's, which- I'm a
2: Jill Biden doctor. Yes.
0: You are. First of all, you have your, your doctorate from Harvard, which like, I mean, I feel so stupid interviewing you to be perfectly honest. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about how you got from for going undergrad from Santa Cruz, which I feel like, don't they not do grades? Right? They don't do grades. No, 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 no
2: grades. No, no. grades.
0: So it's like right. you could just do nothing. And yeah, it's just- also
2: clothing optional. UC Santa Cruz.
0: Oh.
2: Well, it was That's- when I went there. I was going to be an artist. That was my plan. Um, I didn't know what kind. I could have been an actress. Could have been a. Could have been a dancer. Could have been a lot of things. But I knew I wanted to do something creative. And I grew up in a house where there wasn't. Um, my dad was a. Uh, my dad's a doctor. My mom's a, a lawyer was a lawyer and uh, before that she was actually a special education teacher, but the, uh, the uh, sort of the idea of an art, art like a create a viable, financially viable creative pathway wasn't um, super encouraged. And um, I didn't, I just kind of didn't know what the system was. So I went to Santa Cruz cause it was a UC school and I didn't have t- choices about that. It was, you're going to a UC school. I went to Santa Cruz, it was great, it was fun. I became an adult, you know, I mean, that was like my, I, I can't, I mean, honestly I don't know what I did in my undergrad. I I graduated with not one single skill
1: <laughs>
2: whatsoever. Like, <laughs> like,
0: Did you um, go like topless? You said clothing optional. So it was like- clothing
2: optional, only like sunbathing. And I didn't like walk around. There were people who like rode around on bikes and walked around and went to class naked. Oh. I didn't do that, which wasn't really a modesty thing as much as a like, it felt like not like sanitary. Like I.
0: <laughs> yeah, also riding a bike uh, without any, without bottoms is very uncomfortable. I don't and, see-
2: and a risk. I feel like it's a, it's an unnecessary risk. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I didn't do that, but I, but I had a great experience there and I met really amazing creative people there. And I don't know how much you know about Santa Cruz or reputation of Santa Cruz, but I really became that's kind of where I became a, an activist. That's where I got interested in social justice. That's why I, where I started caring about things that I had never cared about before and and that really um kind of sparked my interest in in health and human services and and, and social work in addition to the arts and like thinking about what is the intersection between creativity and and social change. What is the intersection between um arts and 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 justice. And so I got very interested in that, but again, like no skills and very interested meant that like my friends and I would tie ourselves to trees and protest things we didn't understand. In addition to not having any skills or real like education or like knowing things or being thoughtful or analytical about anything, I also wasn't that talented. And so I had to get a job and um, at the time in California you could be a substitute teacher for special education with absolutely no qualifications whatsoever. There was a shortage of teachers and if you had a college degree you could have a special education classroom. So I went to Paramount, California and I taught in a middle school classroom my plan was i would just teach myself whatever it is that i was supposed to be teaching the day before and then i would i would i would deliver it and what happened of course is yes i could come up with content i could figure out what the math was or the vocabulary was or whatever it was going to look like but the reality of the range of of learners of kids in these in this classroom was i mean i had everything from kids who were um, nonverbal and just really, really not able to communicate, not able to express what they were understanding, knowing, thinking, feeling. And then I had kids who were wildly intelligent, who had some kind of physical uh, ambulatory disability. And so the school was just like, let's just put everybody in this one class and we'll get this twenty, you know, one year old who has no idea what she's doing and it's probably fine. You know, my first couple like weeks there, it was this huge awakening for me. And I really, it really changed me. I mean, these kids changed me and they're incredible, incredible kids, by the way, part of my whole trajectory it, within five years, 30% of my classroom had been killed in gun violence, yeah. um, middle schoolers. It was awful. And these were kids who were just incredible and sweet and and had so much potential. And it, it just, it was awful. And when I got there, I didn't have a ramp to my classroom. I had th- two kids in wheelchairs and no ramp. So I had my husband come and build a ramp. Uh, no one cared.
0: I want to back up for one second. You're dressed, so you guys, you must've gotten married like when you were 18. And that we,
2: we started dating as a freshman in college. So we uh, were, we were young.
0: When you were riding your bicycle topless and he was going bottomless, yes.
2: Yes, he was a theater major. I was a dance major. It worked out great. But
0: you guys got married so young. So, like, was there a part of you was like, "I need to play the field a little bit"? Or you were like, "No, this is cool. This is my guy."
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, <laughs> of course. Sure. Um, I would not recommend it. I also don't regret it. I think there is a lot. Uh, there's a lot to be said for creating your nuclear family as an adolescent. <laughs> <laughs> um, complicated, but, sure. but, but there was good things. Actually, one of the kids that was killed shortly after I left and, and went to Harvard, he met my husband when he was building this ramp and he said, you know, he said, Miss Palia, is your husband Mexican? And I said, well, he's half Italian and half Mexican. And the kid said- well, why aren't you pregnant? You're not that ugly.
0: <laughs> That's, amazing. That's an amazing story.
2: <laughs> I was like, okay, all right. I like now I know kind of where I am, what the world is here. But you know, we really we connected through art. I mean, this is where I, I just sort of was turned on to the idea that there are lots of different languages and lots of different ways to communicate. And artists have and creative people, even not very talented ones like myself, who had had an ability to connect in images and words and music and dance and in other ways. And I was, you know, I, I was so these kids had been just forsaken, right? Like these, they didn't know what was happening. People didn't follow their careers. I found out over the course of time that I was there, one of the kids in my class had leukemia as a maybe four-year-old or five-year-old and had delayed his entering school. When he entered school, he, you know, he had all of the effects of having had been been ill. He didn't speak any English. He didn't read or write. He hadn't had any formal schooling. He was immediately put into special ed and stayed there until I met him in middle school. So, um, you know, worked on getting him tested and and main you know put back in in into regular classes and getting him the supports he needed. But this was super common story that there were kids so many kids that no one had had really made an effort to connect with or to understand or to know why they, you know, why they weren't doing well in school. Um, So, so that was really inspiring to me. I tell, I, you know, I tell this one story and and I had a, I had one kid who really tough kid, like the most challenging person, not just kid, most challenging human. And I worked with serial killers and like, Pedophiles later um, as a therapist. So it's it's saying something. He was a very challenging person. And uh I had left campus and I came back to campus. I'd forgotten something. And he was outside my classroom. He was tagging my classroom with a spray pan. And I, and I, I look at him and he looks at me, and I have this moment of panic of like, oh God, I'm like, it's dark, it's whatever. This is this is not good. And he goes, hey. Miss Paulia, how do you spell fuck? <laughs>
0: nice. That's nice. And I'm
2: like, oh my god, sound it out, like, <laughs> <fuck>. <laughs> and then, and then you know, like we talked about, like duck and truck, and <laughs> I let him paint that on the wall, and you know, we got to talking, and he said, you know, I he was angry, he was angry, his brother had died earlier that year, also gang-related violence, and um, and he just wanted to like he was mad and pissed off and wanted to say fuck off to the world and to, to everything. And so I I realized like, gosh, these kids need something different than now, what they have.
0: I would love to know like um, if a parent right now has to send their kid to special ed uh, programs and there's so many different things and it's so much going on there. Are you more confident now with the system? Uh,
2: are you- yeah. Are you? I mean, what I've realized, and I I wouldn't say I'm no more comfortable with the system, although I do think there have been, especially in California, there have been improvements for sure, improvements and awareness and compassion and empathy and and, and just kind of a different a different and legislation. Uh, you know, there's been federal and state legislation that is uh, making sure that kids are not denied the services that they need in order to be successful, which is really important, but what i have become really confident about over the last, you know, 25 years or whatever that i've been in this field is that there are a lot of good people um and many of them artists and teaching artists who take the time and effort and energy to invest in kids and to to regard them in a positive way and to love them and to to really see something different than maybe what everyone else sees and i kind of see that across, you know, since being at at PS Arts, which is where I am currently, I see that that applies not just to special education and students with disabilities. I mean, there are all kinds of terrible inequities in education. There are all kinds of ways that children are excluded, whether it's race, whether it is socioeconomics, whether it is LGBTQ uh, community and identity, whether it's gender. I mean, it's, there's many, many, many different ways in which anyone who's different than anyone else is easily uh, squashed. And that's a real shame for a lot of reasons. I mean, for the the obvious ethical reasons and just reasons of the heart, but also because the world needs people who are different and who think differently and who can innovate and and who can kind of stand up and stand against a world that is not always in agreement with them and not always resonating with them. And that's you know, that, that really motivated my, my work.
0: Oh, Ashley, I think it's that time again. I hear the music. Is it the Matt's plan across America segment?
1: It's time, Matt. Our question today is from our listener, Lindsay, who says, Matt, I work in for-profit, but would like to transition to nonprofit. Do you have any tips for me?
0: So I think my first question is why, but that's a terrible thing for me to say, so I'm gonna take that back. But what I would say to our listener, Lindsay, is thank you, first of all, for wanting to give back and get to nonprofit. It isn't gonna be easy. So if, if you think that anybody can be a CEO of a nonprofit, and we surprisingly we get that a lot, it actually isn't easy. It is a very hard job. You need to have a ton of experience. You need to have done this work. Like it's a lot. So when you think about getting into nonprofit, I really want you to know that just because you wanna do good is not the reason that someone's gonna hire you to be a CEO. So I would tell you immediately, if you already aren't, join a board, join a nonprofit board, really get to know what nonprofits do and what they need. And then from there, if you really still wanna become a nonprofit employee, then you can start looking at different jobs, but know that you're not gonna get a job immediately running the show that no matter what you're doing, if you're the best, biggest lawyer in the world or a huge, phenomenal doctor at a hospital, you're still not gonna get that CEO position at a nonprofit. So just be ready to do your time, to learn, join a board, give back, and really figure out if this is for you and what you wanna do. And that, Lindsay, is what I would tell you. So good luck and thank you for sliding into Ashley's DM.
1: And now back to the interview with Matt and Kristen.
0: You got a master's in education, that's a big deal. I mean, that's a big degree.
2: As sad as I was to leave the school because I really w- had, was attached there, it was irresponsible for me to be there. I needed to figure out how do I learn how to be good at this? How do I learn how to be helpful in this space? And, um, and went back to, to Harvard and started my, my doctorate in education and started thinking about the relationship between the arts and education and outcomes for kids and how to, and connecting with kids. I interviewed with, with someone who's pretty famous in education. Uh, His name is Howard Gardner, and he wrote a book called Multiple Intelligences. And I was so nervous and I, I interviewed with him and I will never, I'm sure he doesn't remember, but I will never forget what he said to me at the time was, you know, he asked me, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to get your doctorate degree? And I hesitated and he then filled in the answer for me, which is like, it happens a lot at Harvard. Like, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: not I mean, Someone else tells you what you think, tell you but, what you should. Yeah. Say. Um, and, you know, basically said, so, cause if you don't desperately and passionately want to learn every single thing about a subject and write a book about it and write multiple books about it, don't do it. Don't do it. It's not about career advancement. It's not going to help you. It's not, this is not the way to like become successful. Um, This is about an an authentic pursuit of a love, of a passion, of something you're interested in. And that was a really, really good advice to me that I have, I've felt in a lot of different ways in my life that even in my career trajectory post school, I stopped thinking about what are the steps? What is the strategy to be successful? And started thinking about putting my head down and absorbing myself in really good work that made me feel purpose.
0: I like that. I like that a lot. So like what? Okay. Like, let's say I went back to Harvard now at, you know, I'm 28, right? Um, You can't tell on, on Zoom. I've got like that beauty feature on, so you can't see my wrinkles on the Zoom. I have that on too. I love that beauty feature. I love it so much. The problem with the beauty feature on Zoom is that when I look at myself on Zoom, because that's all I'm doing, right? You're looking at yourself. You look so good. And then you go to a mirror and it's like, shit, where do all these wrinkles come from? Because they're not on Zoom.
2: Like I turn that shit all the way up. Like my beauty feature.
0: (laughs) But then you go back to the mirror when you go to bed at night. You're like, what the hell? This is not how I look.
2: I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but uh, there's like a makeup artist trick is to put... um, preparation h under your eyes okay and it like gets rid of bags and like wrinkles and tightens your skin and so i tried it i'm 50 i tried it and i was like this is amazing and i did it for like two weeks and then i was like i should probably research this and it turns out it's terrible for you
0: oh is it okay well done. It's Terrible,
2: like it gives you cataracts it's terrible for you so why only bring that up because that is why because i and Zoom and I look so good. And I'm like the beauty feature. And then I looked in the bathroom and I was like, oh my no. This is yeah. unacceptable. And sometimes at some point we're gonna have to rejoin the world and see people in real life and they're gonna see me. I know.
0: So, Wait, when did you turn 50?
2: Well, I turned 50 in July. So I'm 49. Okay. Not
0: there yet. You're not there yet. What do you want to do for your 50th? I'm I'm hoping you want to do like just a big party and just make out with everybody once we all have the vaccine, right? Is that right? Um
2: right? I do have a plan and I, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do. It. I've had the plan for two years. So the resort that was in Dirty Dancing is a real place. It is? <laughs> yeah, in Virginia, where huh. it was filmed. Or every year they have a dirty dancing like weekend where you can go and recreate like pretty much scene from scene. Like really? the whole movie. Yes. And you can rent the cabin that baby huh. and her family rented. <laughs> huh. And that was my plan. I was gonna make all my friends go with me and rent like 12 people and go and, and dress up and be, do the, do that all weekend. Uh, that was I, my plan pre-COVID. Okay.
0: Can I be your friend now and come? Cause I want to do that. Like Doesn't I want to do that.
2: that. Like, Amazing.
0: You and I have to practice the dance because all I'm going to run after you. You have to catch me though. You have to okay, catch me.
2: I can do all, whatever you say. It's a date. It's a date.
0: Okay. So what has the doctorate gotten you that if you didn't have it, you wouldn't be where you are?
2: So I've been at PS Arts 15 years. It was my first job after getting my doctorate. What it has done for me as an executive director of a nonprofit is it's given me a framework to really think globally. Um, You know, when you get into that mode of pursuit of the truth, pursuit of data, pursuit of understanding something that you didn't understand before, that's a mindset that is severely lacking in our culture these days. Yeah. And the experience of graduate school and the doctorate, what it really gave me was the ability to very, very quickly give up what doesn't work. I don't need to grieve it. I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to try to preserve it. I sort of instantly was in the mind frame of this is our situation now. This is where we are in the world. Let's, this is the data that we have. We are going to respond directly to that. And that, I think, has been a huge gift.
0: What made you want to go get a doctorate?
2: I had a burning question. Which was? Which was, how do we best raise the next generation of humans? And the generation out of that, and the generation out of that.
0: Okay. How do you? Art. Art. (laughs) All right.
2: Creativity. Autonomy. Identity. Compassion. Empathy. I mean... I feel like that has, as, as sad and as difficult a place as our world has gotten to. And as much as that has come to a head and, and boiled over during COVID, I think that that is starting to dawn on people, that there is actually nothing more important than being human yeah. and um, humble yeah. and accepting that there's a lot of information and knowledge and wisdom and secrets out there that that we do not know and we cannot know unless we work unless we connect as a collective there's a really huge crossover between creatives and people who are interested in philosophy and religion and you know it, it's it's funny because i think sometimes people think of artists as this like renegade or outlaw um and they think of people who are studying religion as maybe more um, uh, conservative or 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 straight laced or whatever, and I have not found that to be the case at all. We need people who are brave enough, willing enough, and have the opportunity, and who aren't afraid um, for good reason, for the most part, to to ask the questions of the highest authorities there are.
0: I like that. When we before we started this, you and I were talking about working in the jails, and I think that that story needs to be told and i think that that's so cool so you want to tell us a little bit about um your history so this is before yeah. before so your daughter. I,
2: I, I kind of veered away from education and thought uh, uh, mental health and i wanted to be a therapist and i knew I, I at the time i wanted to work with adults i wasn't actually that interested in working with kids um but i i so i pursued this uh career in dance therapy and i started working at hospital is a, it was a, a locked facility. So these are people who had committed crimes and serious crimes, but who were not, not able to stand trial for reasons of mental illness. And, um, and I was, I was young. I mean, I was probably only 25, maybe 26. And I had such dissonance, like just massive cognitive dissonance, because here I am, I would read the charts of these of these folks. And I was not a therapist, right. Or, or even, you know, or a psychiatrist or anything like that. I, you know, my, my job was to provide recreational activities, therapeutic recreational activities, but I would read these charts and I was fascinated by it because I would have this interaction, this very civil, lovely interaction. And then I would read the chart and learn that this particular person that I had been folding swans with, um, you know, had killed his own father and carried his head around in a bag for like five weeks. And then there was a, a space under, so that you'd hear their story and why they were in cart, you know, why they were there. And then there was a space under that for the doctor to put the, um, like the diagnosis or the, the sort of the clinical comments. And this particular, the same person, um, it, the comments said, uh, anger management issues.
0: Sure. Sure. Holding the head. That's amazing. Holding the head. For how long? Five weeks. Five weeks. And you just had anger issues. Anger
2: (laughs) management issues. And I realized like it just, it kind of was like exploded my brain of like, God, the whole system and we boil people down to these, to the point where they're so dissociated, they're so dehumanized, they're so, and you know, and especially if you've done something terrible, especially if you've committed a crime, because then, you know, it was bad enough that you were different and, 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 and we didn't get you. But now you're evil. You're not a human. You're, it's unforgivable. You know, that's the level of total uh, ability for human beings to totally dehumanize other human beings. This is what we see with George Floyd. This is what we see, you know, in these movements where we've dehumanized people to the point where we can do inhuman things and we behave in an inhuman way. And I made a concerted effort at the time with no perspective, no empathy. You said like, well, you know, if you could go back and tell your young self something, what I did, I knew nothing, but I made a concerted effort. And the phrase that I always had in my head was there by the grace of God, go I, you know, like this could be me. It's not me in this particular moment, but maybe it could be, I don't know. I can't judge. And, and it really um, changed my relationship with these particular people, but also with therapy, with mental health, with rehabilitation, with education, with the idea that people are worthy of forgiveness, they're worthy of second chances, and they can change. People's systems, it can all change. You know, So I kept, I had this mantra. So I said, you know, I'd said, well, it could be me, it could be me. And I had this idea of like, you know, people made bad choices, people took wrong turns, people, you know, and it's more complicated than that. But that's what I would tell myself as a 20 whatever year old. There were lots of rules there. I was a rec therapist, so it was a party, it was a holiday time. And I'd made this huge arrangement. So, you know, you weren't allowed to have lots of things in, on the on the unit. And I made this special arrangement for this, this holiday party to have a cotton candy machine. And I'd never operated a cotton candy machine before. And it was a big deal. It, and I was in charge of making and distributing the cotton candy. And there was a huge line and people were so excited They've never got stuff like this. Huge line, and this I see a couple paces back. There's, there's a man on the unit who never did anything, he didn't participate in anything. He was scary, 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 scary. He had hurt a lot of people, including like nurses and people in the unit, and he was sort of had this reputation of being like a monster. And he's waiting in the cotton candy line, and I can just sort of. I can see the anticipation and, you know, it gets closer and closer. And I'm, by the way, I'm very, I'm not good at it, making it. It's hard. I don't know if you've ever tried to do it, but making cotton candy is hard. I'm doing a terrible job and they're like coming out all spindly and whatever. And he finally gets up and he's so anticipating it. And he's like, you can see the child. Like you could, this monster is great. Cr- and I can see the child so excited to have cotton candy at a, you know, at a party. And I hand him this like little cotton candy is all shitty and spindly. And he's like this isn't very good cotton candy and I want, you know, better cotton candy, whatever. Like he's made some complaint and my 25 year old self, like I could not stop coming out of my mouth. Well then you shouldn't have fucking killed someone.
0: (laughs) Oh, Oh, okay. (laughs) 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 What did he say?
2: And, and then I, you know, my mouth closed and I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die right now. And I like, he looked, you know, and he, and we kind of, and then he said to me, You know, that's fair enough. That's fair enough.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) And he he walked away. Two days later, he comes up to me and he says, I think you're the first person that's talked to me like I'm a human. Yep. He's like, You're right. I shouldn't have (laughs) killed someone if I want cotton candy anytime I want it. it.
0: (laughs) I I really, honestly, I think that that's so, first of all, yes, your 25 year old self did that. And probably now you wouldn't have done that. Right. But, um, that you're he's right. Like you have to talk to people like they're humans. You have to, I mean, we've we've had a lot of different shows on this podcast, but that's one of the things I hope people take away. You talk to if you a homeless person's asking you for money, talk to them like a human. Yeah. Somebody in the mental health institution killed somebody, talk to them like a human. I mean, and at the end of the day,
2: not patronizing or not. So it's both ways, right? It's not just be kind and compassionate and like solicitous and and it's also like it I think be. what he was reacting to is I was like. I was acknowledging, you know, I wasn't just being like, Oh, fake. Like I, I had an authentic moment with him and it wasn't flattering to him or me, but really mostly him. And, you know, and he asked me, he said, you know, he's like, they've been pestering me forever. He's lived, you know, he's a lifer. He'll be there forever. He was, he'd been there forever. He said, they've been pestering me. They say I should get my high school degree. And I don't like any, anybody here. I don't want you know, would you be willing to teach me to read? Oh, wow. And I spent the next like four or five months teaching once a week, you know, learning, teaching him to read. And, you know, a lot came out of that as well. But that's kind of what the turning point for me in education was having those five months of someone where it really came out that he didn't have any choices. He also had a mental illness. He also didn't have resources. Like if there was any halfway grown up adult who saw him as a human being who needed something in order to be okay in the world, everything could have been different for him and for the people he hurt, you know, which is a, it's just a whole nother thing, you know? So that's when I went back to, to thinking I'm on the wrong end of this. This isn't for me. This is too hard, but I want to go back and I want to make a difference in in public education. And that's how I ended up at PS Arts.
0: This is something else that we've, we've talked about before that I'm really, I'm interested about, like, at that point, you were on the programming side, you were working directly with the clients period. That's what you were doing. Now, as the CEO, you're not. You're on the admin side, you're raising the money, you're growing the organization, all of that. Um, they're very different. So, you know, would you go back to that programming world? Yes, I and mean, would. Would you go I back would. to working with those kids? You would.
2: I would. And I, I kind of get the best of both worlds. So uh, I started at PSR as program director. I didn't start there as executive director. I started as the program director and I did a lot of teaching. I did, I mean, it's, you know, it's a small nonprofit, like everyone wears every hat, right? I taught in classrooms, I swept the floors, I did the coordination, but I also did the, you know, the curriculum and and the professional development. One of the ways that we've actually been able to do so much programming, you know, during the last 10 years, which have been pretty financially difficult for nonprofits up and down, but in education and nonprofits is that we still in house. So not just me, but our entire program staff is, you know, hands on, like they lead family art nights, they substitute for classes, including myself, I write curriculum, I develop projects, I do, you know, educational videos. So I'm really... I'm really lucky that that's the climate and culture of the organization, that I still get to, I don't, I would not be okay just being an administrator.
0: Yeah. And most CEOs, I think that that's what most CEOs miss is they, you take over a nonprofit, you become an executive director or CEO, and you lose that interaction. So the fact that you can still do that is pretty spectacular.
2: It's a, I'm really, really lucky. I have a really, really incredible team who, both in the advancement and fundraising side, and also in the uh, operations side who really allow the space for that. You know, I don't have to spend every waking moment, budget building, like all of those things. Of course I have to do that, but I absolutely have people I trust. That's my leadership philosophy is surround yourself with the smartest people that you can find and trust them to do their, to the, to do their jobs. I don't need to micromanage.
0: Okay, so we're gonna remember this. I want to go back to you and dance therapy in a minute, but since we're now on the CEO talk, starting out as, as an executive director, I come to you and I say, like, give me like two things that I absolutely need to know. Two things that will make me succeed. So I agree with you a thousand percent. Uh, surround yourself with folks that you can trust, who make you look better, who are smarter than you in what they're doing. I agree with you. Are there other things that you would tell me as a starting out executive director that like I have to do?
2: Take 100% of accountability. The the thing you have to have in your mind every single minute, every single day is this is my problem. The second as a leader that you say, this isn't my problem, this isn't my job, this isn't my issue, you're going to fail. I am 100% accountable. Even if I didn't have anything to do with it, I'm accountable because I didn't have anything to do with it. I think the other thing is, you know, I said humility before, let's say it in a slightly different way of, of really being very, very aware of how much you just don't know and not, not any one person. I mean, no one knows everything and you don't have a crystal ball and, and sometimes you're going to um, make bad decisions and sometimes you're going to make great decisions, but you have to always be prepared for your wrongness.
0: Again, people always, 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 I'm sure they do the same thing to you. They'll come to me and they'll say, I wanna be an executive director. And I always say, but why do you wanna be an executive director? What are some of the things that you just so hate about being the CEO?
2: I feel so responsible for people's livelihoods. And as a CEO of a nonprofit, you will always have to make decisions between two good things. Yeah. you know, Letting one person go, not offering a program, not being able to give someone a raise, whatever it is, you're always constantly, you know, it's a deficit reality. And I try not to think that way, but at the same time, you know, I, I can't not think that way. I'm always thinking if I'm spending money on this thing, then there's this other thing that's not happening or not getting done. And often those things are people.
0: I think that one of the things we don't do well in nonprofit, for profits too, just in leadership is that we don't train or teach our staff, and that's staff from bottom up. So it doesn't matter, line staff, whatever, cafeteria workers, whatever, how to understand a budget. And so you have a ton of folks who are like, well, why can't we do that? And the answer is, well, the budget, and they don't know what the budget looks like. So I do think that that's something that's really so important for all of us moving forward. Anybody listening to this, like teach your staff, how to read a budget, they need to know how to read a budget, they need to understand how it works. So that's what you're saying, choosing between one or the other. I think that budget is really important. Okay. And what do you just like love about being an executive director? Why should somebody be like, yes, at one day, I want to be an ED.
2: I love saying yes.
0: Saying yes. Okay. I
2: love that I have the opportunity when someone comes to me with a new idea or a new direction that I don't have to worry and fret and fight for it, that I can say, yes, do it, try it.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. That's the kind of leader you are, though. There's so many leaders who don't say yes. So we were talking a little bit about you working in jails and bringing dance therapy, right, to jails. And I find that to be really interesting because I don't think people understand what that means. So, there's all kinds of therapy, dance and art and, and all kinds of therapies, right? Can you explain a little bit about what dance therapy means? And then um, one of your like favorite stories about being in jail you not being in jail, but working with folks in jail where you did some dance therapy?
2: Um, yes. So what it means is all, all the creative arts therapies, they're basically alternatives to talk therapy, right? So we offer people uh, talk therapy where you can kind of process your issues and have a conversation and and analyze and, and dig into it. Um, a lot of, and this is also how I kind of got really interested in special education and started out this conversation talking about alternative Ways of communicating and connecting. So, the creative arts therapies offer a way that, without words or without necessarily having like cohesive memories or a narrative story. And a lot of people who have experienced trauma or who have, you know, are experiencing mental illness, don't have a narrative story, a cohesive linear narrative story. And it's it offers a way for uh, for them to. To learn and express ideas, and to, um, to to make sense of things in the world, that um, that you that they aren't able to make sense of in kind of a more traditional talk therapy environment. It's my favorite story of being a dancer is I worked in the step up facility. So this is like the place after you've served your time and you get out of prison, and you then you go to this kind of um, group home where you are gonna get a job and you kind of transition, I guess they call it transitional living maybe, and you helping people kind of reacclimate to the real world after the indignities of being locked up. And, and even, I mean, I would even extend this to, you know, maybe kids who have been in the foster system or any, you know, anyone who has lived an institutionalized life. It is a, a jarring, difficult process to reacclimate to autonomy and making decisions. So I, I liked doing that work and I, I ran a group and I remember it was the holiday time again. So a lot of things happen around the holidays, rec therapists become very important around the holidays. Of course, no one has any money, right? Everyone is either looking for work or on public assistance or, or whatever. And so we were talking about what it feels like to not have anything to give, to give gifts and we decide, as a dance therapy exercise, that we are going to do like these pantomime gifts, um, where we exchange. You know, we sort of create something, and then we we offer it to someone, and they receive it, and and we we interpret it. And you know, and it was very kind of what you think it would be. You know, people were making little things, and this is a ring, or this is a this, or this is a whatever. And there is this one woman who. Uh, who looks at this other or other woman who had been so sad and who was still so sad and was was crying and was grieving and was, you know, her kids weren't coming to see her and she was being, she didn't feel like she could reconnect with her family and they wouldn't, you know, it was just a really hard holiday time. And this woman goes behind her and she starts doing kind of like this thing with her hands and she's extending her fingers and she's going up over her head and doing these swooping Movements, and she does this whole thing, and then, and then the other woman says to her, "What did you give me? What did you make?" And she said, "I made you a set of wings, so that you can fly." And I like cried, (laughs) and it was a really, and I thought, like, to me that that epitomized humanity. That I have nothing to give except the concept. I still can dig deep and come up with an idea of flight, of freedom.
0: Wow, that's awesome. I would love for you to tell our our listeners of all the things that you've done, what are you most proud of?
2: I think the endurance, I I think the longevity, I'm most proud of the 13 years, it is rough.
0: I, I can't imagine being the CEO a nonprofit for thirteen years. It's a lot of work. I don't think people, <laughs> people just don't understand what it means to run a nonprofit. They don't get it. They just don't get it. And it's yeah. it's an impossible job and a thankless job. But at the end of the day, there's so much that you get out of it, even yeah. though you just want to hit your head against the wall so many times. There's just something you get out of it. So and and just so everybody knows, like you are very well respected in the nonprofit space. Period. And oh, I hope that you know that about yourself, like people just adore you and are in awe by everything that you've done. So I hope you know that about yourself.
2: I Well, now I do, thanks.
0: So tell me why, finally, why should somebody give to PSRs?
2: Um, I'm gonna go back to what I said in the beginning because there are thousands, legions, infinite number of kids who given the right tools, the confidence, the creativity, the, the opportunity to question the highest authorities of our systems, of our society, of their lives will make this world not only tolerable, but beautiful. So, and there is no other way to get there. It is the arts that's going to get them there
0: how do we reach all those kids? I mean, there's so many kids like, like, for example, the guy who was the murderer where you, you know, didn't give him good cotton candy. Um, how do you reach all these kids? Like, how do we do it?
2: The boring answer and, but the true answer is that we have a resource in artists and creatives to be educators that um, is completely untapped. You know, so PSR's Arts, one of the biggest initiatives that we've had over the last five years is really working on educator development and providing educators with the tools to do the, not just the tools, but the, the mindset of an artist, the, the eyes of an artist, the, the, the heart of an artist. Like we need all teachers and all artists to take responsibility for our future because they're the ones that are going to be able to do it. And we have to mobilize them. And they're not a community that we have mobilized well, prepared well, or support.
0: It's true. I think COVID has shown us too, like the organizations that have been the most funded are organizations that work in hunger or homelessness. But I think people have really forgotten forgotten about the arts. The arts organizations aren't getting funded right now as much as the other ones. I think it's really important for people to hear this podcast and understand from you why it's so important to continue to fund the arts and organizations working in the arts and organizations providing the arts to kids and adults. Um, it's really important.
2: And to understand that because, man, food's important and health services are important and adults, you know, but to understand that the people that are going to come up with the solution to be able to figure out how you make one piece of bread last you know, across an entire community are gonna be the creatives. So yes, we need to eat and we need to innovate.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Is there anything else that you would like uh, our folks listening to know about you or about PS Arts or about or anything uh, in general?
2: The only thing I'd really love for people to know is that we are open, that we need help. We, and I will put you to work And please, you know, if it's not a financial donation, I will find other things for you to do. There is no shortage.
0: Yep. People can volunteer. We need we need you more than ever a nonprofit. So, well, on that note, um, I thank you so much for uh, joining us.
2: Thank you so much Uh, for having me and for doing this podcast and for giving the opportunity to get people on board with what we do. I really appreciate it.
0: Ashley. Hey, Matt. What was your favorite part about this episode?
1: The stock answer that I should be saying is just what a badass do-gooder Kristen is. And uh, truth be told, no, she seriously is. She's my new hero. So Kristen, if you're listening, like I want to hang out with you sometime. So if we could make that happen, sweet. Um, But my true answer, the one that I will only reveal in private and to our listener and you is... um, I loved hearing about Kristen's 50th birthday plan to go to Kellerman's and I want to do that. I want to do the dirty dancing experience at the mountain lodge. And then I also can't wait to see the two of you reenacting the lift with you doing the jumping and Kristen doing the lifting.
0: I love that. I, I absolutely love that. And I want her to lift me as well. And I think that she's ready for it. I do. I think she's ready for it.
1: She's had six months to like really get her arms, you know, since I totally screwed up and like forgot about her episode for six months. So she's had some time.
0: I appreciate you taking full responsibility on the air for forgetting about her episode. I do. I, I appreciate Ashley. I appreciate you.
1: I think if I learned anything from Kristen's episode, it was that, Hey, the buck stops with me, you know, that is what leadership is. Okay. It doesn't matter if, if I didn't know about it. Guess what? It's my fault for not knowing about it. Direct quote from Kristen Paulia.
0: Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And we all know that it's you, it's really you who makes this show what it is, right? We know that, Ashley, we know that.
1: Um, I would like to pull another quote from a little movie called My Big Fat Greek Wedding, where there's a the discussion about the man being the head of the household. And the retort is, yes, but the woman is the neck who turns the head. You may be the boss, the face of the show, the name on the logo, but guess who turns the head? I am the neck, Matt. I am the neck of nonprofit on the rocks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, my neck, Uh, I I think people should know that our next episode you did not forget about. It hasn't been 19 months since it's been in queue. So I think that she'll be very excited to know that. And our next interview is with Alyssa Barrett, who is the executive director of Western Justice Center. And it's a really cool organization. And actually what I think is really cool is that we're gonna talk a little bit about conflict, and how when we are together with our families, and I think the next holiday will be with our families again will be Thanksgiving, how when things come up that we don't really want to talk about, and we don't want to like, end up not talking to our family ever again, how do you get through that? And it's a very, very cool episode. And I think, uh, I do think folks will enjoy it.
1: I love that. And I think that's also very timely, certainly. um, The heated political climate of the past couple years combined with just the stressors of COVID and everything. So hopefully people will pick up some some good tips from you all.
0: I think so. And yet again, is there anything else, Ashley, that you would like to share as The Neck with our listeners?
1: As always, Matt, I just want to tell everyone to, uh, if they haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. And you can get more information about the episode you just heard with Kristen Paglia at our website, envisionnonprofit.com slash podcast.